May be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We are slowly but surely marching our way through chapter 1. So by Christmas, we might even be finished with chapter 1. Or by the end of the sermon, either way. Uh, What is permanent while you're flipping there? What is permanent? There are a lot of things that we view as unending or secure, things that don't change. Mountain ranges, planets, and oceans are things that don't really change much even over thousands of years. Therefore, to us, they often seem permanent, like they're going to be there forever. But there are other things that lack any credible semblance of permanence. Kids, they love to declare that they are BFFs, best friends forever. And there are some kids who do actually remain friends for life, but most BFFs are for the summer or for the semester or for a few grades. A child's grasp on the definition of forever is not very good. But then again, even as adults, what we often think of as continuing and as permanent, like creation, really isn't. Scripture, on the other hand, makes time statements that are fixed and secure. It makes many promises that are truly never-ending. The Bible presents us with a friendship and a fellowship that will truly be forever. And I would like to propose a new acronym for us, CFF, Christian Friends Forever. Because unlike BFF, Scripture promises us fellowship with other believers that will never end. And that is only possible because we have been united together with Christ. Therefore, because our hearts are purified through Christ, we must love one another. So that intro, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached So in the text for this morning, what we're going to see is it makes a transition from being more individually focused to more community focused, to the community of believers. Now, that doesn't mean that the verses before this didn't include the whole community. But now Peter is going to take these truths and apply the truths of the gospel more directly to living in fellowship with other believers. And that focus is going to continue on for most of the remainder of this book. So at the outset, Peter is going to ground how we should interact with others based on the truths of the gospel. And the actual command in this passage is to love one another. That's the command, the imperative. But how do we know how to love one another? Who gets to define what brotherly love actually looks like? It has to be the Lord. And this text is going to explain this. For us, if we're truly redeemed and forgiven children of God, then we must behave accordingly. So we're going to look at two points. And the first point is that because our hearts are purified, we must love purely. So verse 22 begins with having purified your souls. Notice the tense of the verb there. 
This is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense shows a completed action in the past that continues to have significance and implications now. Peter did not say that you were at one time purified, but that you are now impure. He doesn't say that you are being purified right now or that you will be someday. He says that at some point in the past, you purified your soul and that it continues to be pure. So at some point in your past, you were completely cleansed and purified. There's no purifying left to be done. So really what we see here is that we're talking about our initial conversion to the faith. We have now been cleansed and purified. Now, Peter is not denying that we still sin in this life. He's not saying that we're now perfectly holy and good. He's not teaching some sort of perfectionism heresy. But to show that and really display that, we need to move on to the next two qualifying phrases in this text. So the first qualifying phrase is that you were purified by your obedience to the truth. And so there was some truth which you obeyed that led to you being purified. You had some active element in this equation. And having purified is in the active voice, meaning you are the active one in the purification process. And that makes sense when we connect that phrase with obedience here. You have, if you have no role in your, in this purification, then how could you obey? You cannot be purely passive and still actively obey. That would be a contradiction. Therefore, if you are a believer, then you have actively purified yourself. That is why the text says, by your obedience. The obedience is the cause of the purification. So the question now all hinges on what Peter means by the word truth. What truth have we obeyed that could have had this role in our conversion? We already noted that we are talking about our initial conversion in this passage. We'll see that more in verse 23, which says that we have been born again. So there's some tension in this issue. But as, as good Presbyterians, though, I'm sure you know that God has to awaken dead hearts. Romans and Ephesians tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead men can do nothing because they're dead. Ephesians then clearly says that our salvation was not by works so that no one may boast. So what is going on here in the text? Did Peter mess up his theology? This sounds like works righteousness. Or is Peter teaching free will Arminianism? Not at all. So defining truth is the key here. Truth cannot refer to the law. Works righteousness cannot save you. No one can meet the perfect requirement of the law, so it can only condemn. We cannot purify ourselves by trying to keep the law on our own. That's never going to work. That sort of obedience could never purify us. Nor simply being right about everything an option. We can be a walking thesaurus, but that cannot purify anyone. Even the demons acknowledge the truth that God is real, sovereign, and holy. But they respond with trembling and with fear. They are not purified by that knowledge. That is not a purifying obedience to the truth. So there's really only one answer that matches with the text. There's only one truth which could save us through obedience. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, and everyone who thus hopes in him, that is Christ, purifies himself 
as he is pure. I think Jesus is the truth that we are meant to obey. He is the only one who can purify us. The gospel is the good news about Christ. So to love and to follow Christ is to believe in the gospel. Believing the gospel is walking in obedience to the truth. The Spirit works in the dead heart of an unbeliever to awaken them from their dire state. The revived soul will then see his sin, the penalty it deserves, and they'll recognize the only option they have for rescue. So it's only in the gospel that the damned can flee to Christ for mercy and for refuge. The heart, awakened to its need, knows to flee to Jesus and to the truths of the gospel. And then the newly awakened soul can actively trust in and believe in Jesus. So really what we're talking about is this is the conversion event. God works faith in the heart of man, and then the man may respond correctly. They will repent of their sin. They will cast themselves at Christ's feet for rescue, and they will be saved. And it is in that moment of faith that the former sinner becomes a saint. It is this miraculous moment that the dead heart of that sinner becomes a purified new creation. So often as Reformed believers, we like to talk about God's sovereignty in the plan of salvation. And that is not a bad thing at all. But sometimes we explain his sovereignty as if he does everything without man ever doing anything. And the irony is that by doing so, we're denying a portion of his sovereignty in salvation. We already know from Ephesians that we are not saved by works. That is not in question here. But part of God's sovereignty in creation is that he can regenerate a formerly dead heart so that it will willingly choose to come to Christ in faith. So the will of man choosing to believe is 100% active, even while God is 100% active as the cause of that ability. So he doesn't make you choose, nor does he turn you into a robot that just follows a program. He awakens your dead soul that it will operate correctly. He changes, the, changes you so that you will sincerely desire to run to Christ in faith. And so the obedience to the truth is talking about your conversion to the faith. The day you chose to believe in the gospel and follow Christ is the day you purified yourself through the instrument of faith. It was Christ's blood that cleansed you and the Holy Spirit that applied it to your heart. And because of all of that, you can obey the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So the purification of your souls that took place on the day of your conversion is complete and final, yes. But it's also something that will, continue, that will forevermore dominate your identity. From that time, now, and for the rest of your days, you are purified in Christ. And this glorious truth is all because of faith. So that was the first qualifying phrase explaining how it is that you have purified your souls. Now let's look at the second qualifying phrase, which will give the implication of your pure soul, of what your pure soul needs to do. Peter wrote, having purified your souls for a sincere, sincere brotherly love. Now we're not concerned not with the, what caused the purified heart, but what the purified heart is purposed for. What is the result of this heart that has been redeemed and changed? What are we as believers called to do now that we have been cleansed? We are called to have a sincere brotherly love. Think of being set in motion in one direction. 
The Lord cleansed us and set us on the path of brotherly love. We were pushed off into the stream of fellowship with other believers. We have been set unto this love for one another. In the Greek, the word for sincere translates literally as unhypocritical. ESV sincere gives the same idea. We are purified so that we can love our brothers and sisters with a love that is clean and pure. We cannot be two-faced, double-tongued, or anything else in how we treat one another. We cannot beat one another down for the same sins that we struggle with. We cannot preach one thing to others and live by another creed. Instead, our love must be honest, helpful, and uplifting. This is what the term brotherly love means. This is the word Philadelphia, which we normally translate as brotherly love. This is a sincere, warm love for one another. It is a deep and selfless love that focuses on the good of others before yourself. The only love that is of higher value than the love for your brothers and sisters is a love which we must have for the Lord. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees tried to stump Jesus with questions about the resurrection. Well, Jesus saw through their attempts and he silenced them. And the Pharisees watching this, seeing that the Sadducees had gotten destroyed, they decided they wanted to turn too. So one of them came up with a question. So one teacher of the law asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And without a moment's hesitation, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the primary and most important love we are to have in our lives. This falls into Scripture's category of agape love. But Jesus didn't stop there. Without a moment's pause, he said, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Do you notice that Jesus said the second is like it, meaning like the first? If you truly love the Lord with your whole being, as the greatest commandment commands you to do, then you will love others as yourself. It is a complete impossibility to have true agape love for God and not have a true phileo love for your brothers. The love for God is what enables and informs our love for one another. They are totally inseparable. And that is why the entirety of the law and prophets depend upon those two commands. Without one, the other becomes void. The law of God is totally interconnected, and so, and so is the love we must display. We have to remember that all of Scripture is an expansion and an explanation of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are all focused on our relationship with God, while the latter six are all about our relationship with one another. So the greatest and second greatest commandments are simply a summary of those ten commandments. So having purified your souls through obedience to the truth is the first four commandments. It is the greatest commandment. And if that love for God is present in your life, you must display the other six by having a sincere brotherly love for others. So, so often in our culture, people are quick to claim faith, but slow to display love for others. We have people who love God, but won't go to church. They are spiritual. They pray. So why go to church? They love the Lord, but they have a problem with those fake and hypocritical people at church, those fake Christians. They like Christianity, but they have an issue with established 
religion. Well, that's caused too many problems in history and in our society. The lone wolf, solitary Christian, it's a common occurrence in our culture. But according to the Bible, it's really an impossibility. The irony is that by refusing to join with other brothers and sisters, they're actually attempting to practice hypocritical love rather than unhypocritical love. Only when we are together can we practice unhypocritical love. We are called to love one another, and we can't do that if we're never together. So the command does include showing love to all Peter, all people, and Peter's going to show that later in the book. But this sort of brotherly love is especially for believers, one believer to another. So without gathering around worship at church and walking through life with other believers, this command is impossible. So having looked at both the qualifying statements about our purification, Peter restates things to ensure we understand. At the end of verse 22, he commands us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So out of that same heart that has been cleansed and redeemed by believing the gospel, we are called to love. Only once our hearts have been awakened to love the Lord with our whole being can we turn around and love one another. Here we are explicitly commanded to love one another. Peter even tells us to love one another earnestly. Now the root of that word is used to describe animals and humans running at full speed, full exertion. So there is an intensity and a clear mission to the brotherly love that we have to show to one another. As one commentator put it, love should be strenuous and enduring. It is with this energy and this zeal that we must seek to build one another up in the truth. And this is really how we love one another purely, by zealously serving one another with the gospel. So our second point is that because our hearts are purified, we must love abidingly. A word you use every day, I'm sure, abidingly. So there's a phrase that goes something like, show me what you're made of. And it's really a challenge to compete and to drive on. How hard you push when you're under duress shows something about your character. The idea is that if you are determined, strong, and resilient, then it's going to show. On the other hand, if you're weak, unfocused, and lazy, that's going to show too. So we can ask that question of love. What is your love made of? Well, the world's answer to that question leaves something to be desired. The world's love is shallow, incomplete, and ultimately not love at all. Their love is incomplete to begin with, but Peter also refers to it as perishable. It is not enduring. It is not an abiding love. The love of the world cannot be steadfast or permanent. It will fall apart at some point, be it through testing, sin, or death. The love of the world is made of rotten wood and wet paper, so it's going to fail in the end. A flawed structure will eventually collapse. But that's not the love that we have. That's not the love that we have been given. Peter grounds the love of believers to our rebirth. The world is born into the perishable and loves imperfectly. Meanwhile, believers have been born again to the imperishable. At one time, we were classed among the perishable as well. But when the Spirit awakened us to new life, we were removed from the perishable category. From the moment we obeyed the gospel and believed, we were brought in to the imperishable. 
Notice the terminology Peter uses in verse 23. This contrast is between perishable and imperishable seed. The seed determines what the plant will be. So the question is what the question now is what the seed is in this passage. How many take this to be referring to the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts? And that's not a bad answer. We've already talked about the Spirit's role in our rebirth. The Holy Spirit also grows us in love and enables us to love God and one another better. But I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. If you look at the end of verse 23 and then scan down to verse 25, the focus is on what? The focus is on the Word of God. So what we will see in a moment is that Peter's focus will be to compare our love with the Word. Therefore, we have been reborn with the imperishable seed of the Word of God. Really, this matches up with Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13. In that parable, a sower goes out and he spreads seed on the ground. Some falls on this ground, some falls on others, some sprouts, some doesn't. And the deciding factor was the type of soil that the seeds fall into. And in his explanation of the parable, Jesus tells his disciples that the seed is the word of God being preached to the world. The seeds that grow up and produce fruit were the ones who received the word with joy and were actually reborn. Those were the plants that produced fruit in abundance. I think Peter may well have had the parable of the sower in his mind when he wrote this text. And he takes that same concept of faith in the gospel being preached and he builds on it here. Not only does the word of God planted in our hearts bear fruit richly, it is also permanent and never ending. Peter says that you have been reborn through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is powerful because God's words are powerful. They are the speech of Almighty God, and as such, they share the same power and effectiveness as the Lord himself. Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Everything in creation was brought into existence by the powerful speech of God. By a word, he brought an entire spectrum of light into existence one which would then reveal the majesty of everything else he was about to do in creation. His words created every plant, living organism, molecule, atom, and quark, down to the smallest thing you can find. The three persons of the Trinity were entirely and completely active in all of it. John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing came into being except by the word of God. The same word that created the world has also created new life in us. Scripture is able to cut into our very hearts, into our very cores, and bring us to a state of obedience and faith. Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is powerful because it comes from him who is living and eternal. 
And as such, his word will bear the same marks of power, effectiveness, and eternity. As his word pierces into the inmost core of our hearts, his truth awakens and vivifies our souls. And once the word of God has begun to reign over your heart, he will never relinquish his rule. The eternal word of God will dwell forevermore in your heart, never to leave you or to forsake you. You have been reborn with imperishable seed because, because your soul will never die or be condemned. Your heart will be living for eternity because the eternal God has made a home for you there. For your heart to cease living, Almighty God would have to cease to live. And since the Lord is the great I am who was and who is and who is to come, you are part of a love that will never end. And that means you are commanded to have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that is sourced from the never-ending perfect love of God in you. And that has massive implications for how we are to love one another. But before we address those points, let's look at verse 24. So Peter quotes these familiar words from Isaiah 40. And the context of these verses in Isaiah lends a great deal of significance of why Peter uses them here. Isaiah 40 is about God comforting his people. Because of her sin, Judah was being oppressed by the surrounding nations. She was experiencing oppression and pain. But the promise of the chapter is that God would rescue, renew, and redeem his people. They would not suffer oppression forever. And we often think of grass and flowers in this quote as earthly things, and that's not incorrect. But in this context, it is specifically the nations that are persecuting Israel. Those evil people, evil nations, are the grass and the flowers. They look strong and healthy now, but they're going to be gone quicker than grass that dries up in the sun. They will be gone faster than the flower bloom that browns and dies within a week. Meanwhile, God will rescue and lift up his people. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. For saints suffering at the hands of wicked nations, this was a grand promise of redemption. And so in its context, these quoted verses are encouraging the Jews to stand firm on God's promises. It was a promise of hope and of restoration in a difficult time. The nations will soon wither and be gone, but the promise of rescue will never be removed. And the surety of that promise is that God's word can never fail and it cannot be left undone. The all-powerful God of the universe gave a promise and that promise will stand. So Peter uses this quote from Isaiah 40 in very similar ways here. A major theme of the book of 1 Peter is suffering persecution in this life. And much of that original context still fits. Those persecuting and oppressing believers will soon wither and be destroyed. That perishable seed will soon be gone and dry up. But the imperishable seed that has brought us to new life will never fade away. Just as the eternal word of the Lord stands forever, so it will remain forever in our hearts. Just as it is eternally living and abiding, so will we remain forever alive in it. God has united himself to us so that he would have to die before we could. Time will march on. Our bodies will grow old and one day die. 
but our souls and the surety of future glory are secure because the one who has implanted his word in our hearts rules over all things. And that is why Peter ends this chapter by saying that this is the good news that was preached to you. The word of God, the gospel, is what has allowed us to believe in Christ and to be born again with imperishable seed. There's one more element we need to discuss. Earlier, we were talking about the command to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we just spent a considerable amount of time talking about the word of God and its eternality. So what's the connection there? Well, it's not a random tangent by Peter. The command to love one another earnestly is the driving verb in this text. Everything else in this passage is building on that command. So the question now is what the eternality of the word has to do with the command to love one another with a brotherly love. And the point we're under is that because we've been purified, we must love abidingly. The love which we are to have is based on the word that has birthed us, which is eternal and sure. And so there are two implications for our brotherly love. First, our love must be a never-ending love because the word that produces it is never-ending. The word that has been planted in our hearts imparts its own nature to our love. So instead of worldly love, which is perishable and impure, our love takes on the eternality of the word. The world's love will end and be no more, but the love we are called to is ongoing. It is not just for the rest of this life, but for the next also. The love that we have now will not pass away or end. Eons into glory we will still have the never-ending love of the word in our hearts. So that's the first implication. The second is that we have been brought into an eternal fellowship. And this is really just a necessary result of the implication we just mentioned. If we are part of a never-ending love, then that means our love for one another is something that is going to continue on into glory. There will never be a time in the future where we will not have this brotherly love for one another. While we have to be commanded in this now because of sin, there's a day coming where it will always be perfect and natural. And the brothers and sisters we love now will be the same ones we share glory with in eternity. So because of the imperishable word of God, we have been connected to the growing brotherhood of all saints. They say that blood is thicker than water. but That's not what scripture teaches here. You, who have been marked by God, marked as God's children by the waters of baptism, are eternally bound in communion with every other believer. So yes, family ties are important, but your bond with your family is never-ending only if they have purified themselves by believing the gospel. You can have very dear unbelieving friends, but one day those ties are going to be broken. We will walk with the Lord and enjoy glory only with those who have been washed and purified by his blood. And that is a bond that may never be broken. The same saints that you are commanded to love earnestly today are the same ones you will love 10,000 years into glory and beyond. Let's conclude. As I'm sure you've already realized, the implications for how we live in the church are massive. We do not have time to discuss all the different ways we are to display this brotherly love but we have to at least mention a few. So first, this says a lot about the importance of the local church. 
If we are to truly love one another from a purified heart, we have to be around each other enough to do so. Church of the New Testament assembled together for worship every Lord's Day, every week. Even when it was dangerous to do so, they found ways to meet together, to gather around the word and to worship. And scripture commands us not to forsake the assembling together for worship. So it's not only for the sake of worshiping God and growing in our love for him. Our worship is inherently communal. If we are not engaged, if we are not engaged in Lord's Day worship, if we do so alone, the Christian life is not just that vertical relationship between us and God. That's what we talked about earlier. We have a horizontal relationship with other believers. So if either portion of that equation is removed, then our worship is not just incomplete, but it ceases to be worship. Now, of course, there are situations where we can't gather for worship, where we're sick or, or homebound, and that's different. But when we're able, that is the call. Fellowship without God is a social club, while worshiping God without other believers is a rejection that Christ died for others besides yourself. So not only do you need to be members of a local church, but you need to faithfully invest in it because it is only as you are gathered around the word of God in community that you can truly worship and obey the command to love your brothers and sisters earnestly. If we are not being fed through the ordinary means of grace, especially the preached word, we will not be able to love our brothers and sisters. And one major way we love our brothers and sisters is gathering around the preached word, gathering around worship. Worship with other believers is an irreplaceable and uncompromisable command of Scripture. And then second, anyone can sit at a distance and claim to love somebody that they never have to actually deal with. There's a reason Scripture commands us to be patient with and to bear with one another. Because we still sin, communion and fellowship, it can be very difficult at times. Fights, sins, dislikes, they plague our relationships. Even poor communication can create issues where there should be none. Humans are all too prone to infighting and bickering, and Christians do not escape that dynamic. James tells us that we quarrel because our spirits are at war within us. Our personal struggle with sin leads us into conflict with others who, guess what, are also struggling with sin. And the result is fighting, hurt, and damage to the church. Peter knew all about the turmoil that often plagues our relationships. And yet he commanded us to love our brothers and sisters earnestly and sincerely. So remember that you will spend an eternity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that can be a difficult thing to remember when your anger is rising. But the call and the command of this passage is to, in that moment, love others with the abiding and the pure love of God. Remember that you have purified yourself, that you have been reborn, and that the living and abiding word of God dwells within your heart. Therefore, you are called to love one another purely and abidingly. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What will your love for your brother do? Let's pray. Lord God, we see a beautiful picture in the purification that we have been given through Christ, through the gospel. You have called us to obedience through it, and that by faith we have taken hold, laid hold of this grand salvation. Yet we're not allowed to just sit where we were. We're not allowed to just 
try to worship you and not deal with other Christians. You have called us into a fellowship. You have called us into a brotherhood. And so, Lord, help us to faithfully seek to love and serve one another in a way that is glorifying and honoring to you. It is not always easy. Sometimes it is very difficult. And yet you have commanded us to display that love to one another. Lord, work this in us and plant it upon our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.